Hi, and welcome to Listen Up, A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that's a full-tilt diva that wants flowers, parades, and a monument built to the skies with its name plastered on it. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the ugly of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about... Avengers. So jumping into our time machine, go with me to a to a, a previous time. Back okay. in the September of 1963. <laughs> the debut of the Avengers, billed by Marvel as Earth's mightiest heroes. And it seems now like a team-up of Marvel's most popular superheroes, I mean the ones that aren't Spider-Man or the Fantastic Four, it seems like an inevitability. (laughs) But the story goes that it happened because of draconian printing process and one man's drinking problem. All right, already, I love this story, keep going. I'm in, sold. Marvel planned to debut two new titles at the same time in 1963. Those were going to be Daredevil and the X-Men. Mm-hmm. At the time, you booked a printing press months in advance, and you paid for it even if you didn't use it. Uh Due to his day job and the drink, Daredevil artist Bill Everett had fallen way behind on The Man Without Fear's first issue, and the company was right on the edge of losing money on that prepaid printing time. Uh So they need a book. They have no book because (laughs) Bill Everett's screaming about his day job and the booze. (laughs) Enter our heroes, Stan and Jack, the Uh two fastest comic makers in town. They brainstormed the issue, Jack drew it, Dick Ayers inked it in record time, and they beat the deadlines so that Avengers hit Stan's the same time as X-Men number one. Wow. And as great a team as Stan and Jack are, this book reads like the term paper somebody wrote the (laughs) night before it was due. (laughs) It it mostly comes together. It's... uh, it's just a little rough around the edges and you're you're like uh listen we don't grade on a curve here wow with that kind of background i'm fascinated i need to go read this (laughs) yeah i would recommend reading it from a historical perspective realizing just under what stresses this book was created okay and clearly the avengers have risen above these ignominious beginnings yeah (laughs) But nevertheless, it's not spectacular. Uh-huh. Uh, it's still, yeah, I mean, it's not It's not the worst thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Avengers got printed all this time, and X-Men was canceled. So, yes. I mean, <laughs> there are worse things, but... So, was that the first, like, team coming? Because they have, like, the Justice League over at DC. Was this the first time they just brought all the big ones in, and it was an accident, and it just sort of worked, or...? I mean, that's the first time at Marvel. yeah. It's kind of interesting because super teams are totally obvious. Uh One of Marvel's debut titles, its real number one debut title is Fantastic Four, which is a team, Mm -hmm. like right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. And you've got X-Men debuting at the same time as Avengers, but both of those starred characters that were created to be on a team. Mm -hmm. The Avengers is five disparate characters teamed up on a day unlike any other when Earth's mightiest heroes stood united against a common threat. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, that threat, by the way, is the Hulk. Ooh. After Loki duped him. Just so you know, the threat, unlike any other, was literally 
one of the founding team members. So just file that away. So, but, okay. But, but the quick question is this, though. Like, did Loki wind Hulk up and then make him mad and then, like, point him at the Avengers? Because Hulk doesn't have, does he have control in the, in the comics? I know that's an issue we're going to talk about in the movie, but. Loki basically wound him up and pointed at Thor. Okay, all right, all right. And on the way to Thor dealing with that, he ran into Iron Man. Uh-huh. And, and so it's, the the Avengers is like one of those cartoon snowballs that's just rolling downhill, <laughs> getting bigger as it goes. <laughs> I'm fascinated. I have to read this Oh, now. yeah, you should definitely read it. And uh-huh. we could do like a real short, right after Lonnie read Avengers <laughs> number one conversation and see if it went anywhere, but... But you're you are on to something with this, like throw them together and see if they stick, not originating with the Avengers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The very first superhero team happened way back in 1940 in All Star Comics number three, and it's the Justice Society of America. Okay. The Society. <laughs> they were the precursor to your more famous Justice League of America, who didn't really show up until the Silver Age, which would actually be right around the same time that we were getting Fantastic Four and uh, and Spider-Man and such. So they're a society, kind of like the League of Women Voters, right? <laughs> if only. Because Wonder Woman was their secretary, and it was not a good look. Oh, but no. that's a whole other But the initial lineup for the JSA is kind of interesting as we look at the Avengers, because it's also not characters that were made to be a team, right? You've got Dr. Fate, who's like a mystic magician type guy, Mm -hmm. our man who becomes super powered for exactly one hour when he takes his super steroid. Yes, really. (laughs) There's Green Lantern, but not the one you're thinking of. And there's Hawkman. Okay. There's also the Atom, no, not the one you're thinking of, and the Sandman, not the one you're thinking of, and the Flash, not the one you're thinking of. Wait, but these are all DC. This is the DC side of this, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So that uh-huh. happened way back in 1940, and it was very much the same thing. Here's a bunch of people who have their own books mm-hmm. or, you know, something. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were backups and other books and stuff like that, and they threw them together to stick. Okay. And it's very similar with the Avengers, because that initial lineup of the Avengers is weird. Mm-hmm. Ant-Man, the Hulk, Iron Man, Thor, and the Wasp. Okay. Yes, really. <laughs> so realizing that there are some threats too large for any one hero, especially if that hero is Ant-Man, <laughs> they come together and inexplicably name themselves the Avengers, because what are they avenging? <laughs> Now, by issue two, Ant-Man becomes Giant Man instead, and Hulk would leave because he makes no sense on a team. Right, sure. Mm -hmm. By issue four, they find Captain America and thaw him out. (laughs) So he joins up, and the precedent has now been set. The Avengers would have a massively rotating roster, mostly made up of losers, has-beens, and (laughs) also-rans. And also villains. Lonnie, so many villains. Oh, God. Well, yeah, you got to have a lot to combat that team, right? No, no. I mean villains joining the Avengers. Wait, wait, wait. What? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, here's, here's a prime example. Good? So, like, I mean, yeah, they've reformed. Okay, supposedly. so it's a redemption story then. Sure. For a sure. lot of villains. Don't look too closely at okay. it. Okay. I mean, I mean, a good example of this is issue number 16. Uh-huh. Thor, Iron Man, Wasp, and Ant-Man leave the team. So Cap assembles an all-new Avengers with mm-hmm. some names you'll find familiar. Hawkeye, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver. Okay. All three of which are ex-villains. Wow. Okay. I didn't know Hawkeye was originally a villain. 
Well, listen, everything Hawkeye does is basically low rent, so <laughs> don't get too excited about it. But yeah, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver in the regular comics are the son and daughter of Magneto, and so they originated on his team, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Okay. Now, we will talk about Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver in a future episode. Yes, we will. But let's take a minute for Hawkeye. Mm -hmm. He sucks. <laughs> Everybody hates Hawkeye. It is universal. I, oh, it should be. <laughs> I, and I mean, I have a predilection for disliking archery-themed heroes because most versions of Green Arrow are so damn bad. Mm -hmm. But Hawkeye really takes the cake. He's originally a carnival act. Okay. Yes, he worked for a circus, inspired to become a superhero when he sees Iron Man in action. All right. Because nothing makes me think that shooting arrows will make me an effective crime fighter like seeing a man in a multi-billion dollar suit of high-tech armor punching muggers. Right. Now, this is the thing about Hawkeye that throws me off entirely is that, one, it's the height of medieval technology, right? <laughs> so, like, yeah. we've got this guy with arrows, not to mention the fact that he's got the quiver on his back. And, like, <laughs> how many does that? Twelve arrows? Is that twelve? So, if you hit every... Like, it just... It feels... A little bit weird to me <laughs> like it just seems like you would want something like if that's your only power you would want something that doesn't run out so quickly i don't know what to say i think we can probably blame green arrow okay so so I hawkeye mean, was the response to green arrow well i mean in as much as anyone is a response to green arrow but <laughs> i mean green arrow is the first archery themed hero that really catches on and it's mostly because he's like a batman ripoff okay with just arrows instead of other gadgets. Um, right, right. But it's just like that one thing. Like, Batman has a bunch of gadgets. Iron Man is is a, a flying tin can full of gadgets, right? Right. But the, the arrows are like one thing. Like, that's all you got. And then as soon as he's done with the arrows, like, he doesn't really have anything else. I agree. Okay. I mean, I, mean, I, I think he's awful. It's crazy. <laughs> now, especially considering that he starts out as a reluctant villain... And then yeah. a slightly less reluctant dupe of the Black Widow before she becomes not KGB. Right. <laughs> but then he joins the Avengers and just becomes disproportionately important to their history. He led them. He led the West Coast Avengers. Oh. Well, was he, he was like, like a like strategizer? This... Was he like a guy he... who could... No. no, he just had a lot of attitude and opinions. <laughs> I'm serious. He's really like the dissenting voice. So he's like the the or example of the mediocre white man who's like so entitled and thinks that he can run everything. Is that it? Oh, that's delightful. That's the way I'm reading it from now on. And honestly, as far as I'm concerned, that segues nicely to Jeremy Renner, who I think also sucks. Okay, here's the thing. Like, I actually have a soft spot for Jeremy Renner because of The Unusuals. That was the first thing I ever saw him in. I loved The Unusuals. It got canceled after like 10 episodes, nobody else has ever seen any of it. But I actually really liked him in that. Um, but I could see like he's not, you know, it's it's not a magnetic thing with Renner. I was predisposed to not love him in terms of the Avengers because I was just like, Hawkeye, what? <laughs> right. But then he also just does a bunch of stuff that I just, I just, I I mean, well, we saw him for a hot moment in Thor, right? Where he had a spark of personality. He did. He did. And he was ready to, you know, to shoot Thor with an arrow if Coulson had let him. And then we stomp that ember of a personality into the dirt. 
We just put it out, ground it out, ground it out. Nobody likes Hawkeye. I almost feel bad for him. I kind of want to like him Whedon because likes nobody Hawkeye, likes him. We can him. talk about that when we well, get to we Age will. of Ultron. We'll get to that. All right. So anyway, back to your comic now, book history. If anyone is interested in reading Hawkeye stories, generally I would say don't. Okay. However, there is one series written by Matt Fraction and drawn by David Aha. Or Aja, I'm honestly not sure how to pronounce his name, mm-hmm. and I couldn't figure it out with Googling. Okay. <laughs> the first volume of which is entitled My Life as a Weapon, and I now only understand Hawkeye in terms of being a bit of a self-loather with a death wish. Okay. All right. It also gives us a lot of exposure to Kate Bishop, who is the far superior Hawkeye in the Marvel Universe. All right. So we have a woman as Hawkeye who takes over that identity? Yes. Briefly, the Avengers were disassembled. Uh-huh. That was, like, written across lots of the books. Yes. And a small team of youthful heroes came together as the young Avengers. Mm-hmm. And one of them was Kate Bishop, who took over the identity of Hawkeye and basically surpassed Barton on every level, as far oh. as I'm concerned. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated about this transfer of identity. We're going to have so many of those discussions as we move through all of these stories because it just it fascinates me. Legacy heroes are one of my favorite concepts in superhero comics. Yeah. And I think we're going to have to get them soon uh-huh. in the MCU, so I hope we have an MCU reason to talk about them because I find them fascinating. I love them and your conception of who is the real person or are they integrated? I think we'll just, you'll have a really good uh, view on that whole topic when we, God willing, have an MCU reason to discuss it. Okay. <laughs> when we get a new Captain America or a new Iron Man or something like that. Oh, yeah. No, that's going to be really, really interesting. There are two potential new Iron, oh, I'm sorry. There are two potential new Captain Americas on deck mm-hmm. as far as the movies are concerned. Wow. So, punt that to the future. Wow. No, that's going to be really interesting. So the movie version of the Avengers is also heavily influenced by the ultimate Marvel take on the team, (laughs) the Ultimates, which is such a better name than Avengers, I can't even. I don't. (laughs) What are you avenging? It's, I don't know. (laughs) Now, I can't necessarily in good conscience recommend the Ultimates Uh because comics were kind of going through some stuff at the time. (laughs) But the Mark Millar and Brian Hitch run on The Ultimates is very widescreen and high-octane action movie stuff. You just need to also expect a heavy dollop of cynicism dropped on top. Okay. Now, we could talk about Thanos because he's kind of in this movie a little, but I think we're going to get better reasons to talk about him later. Mm-hmm. We could also talk about the Chitari, but honestly, they don't bear much resemblance to either of their sources. There's a shape-changing race called the Scrolls that got transferred into the Ultimate Universe that became a shape-changing race called the Chitari. Uh-huh. But they just don't have much in common with this bunch of faceless minions. Right. <laughs> so we can, however, talk a little bit more about the Tesseract. Well, sure, because we saw that in um, in Captain America. You know, this is what they fished up from the plane. This is what Red Skull was using. Yes. Comic book-wise, it's loosely based on the Cosmic Cube. <laughs> And I am still trying to figure out why they didn't call it that in the movie, because it doesn't really look like a Tesseract. Mm -hmm. And honestly, Cosmic Cube sounds way cooler. Right. It's got that alliteration going for it. 
it's a Stan Lee staple <laughs> with your Reed Richards and your Peter Parkers and your Yes, whatnot. yes, yes. Now, basically, in the comics, the Cosmic Cube is a wish-granting device that the Red Skull has wanted forever and even succeeded in having or creating a couple of different times, although it's kind of a monkey's paw and it never really quite works out for Mm -hmm. him, which I think only makes it into the movie in as much as it doesn't really work out for Loki either. (laughs) And it seems like the Tesseract is also an Infinity Stone, but we'll come back to that later because I don't think anybody at Marvel had put much thought into that idea when this movie came out. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And maybe they still haven't. We'll see this (laughs) summer. For Infinity War. Right. Because we're still working with that whole thing. The Infinity Stone thing. For a few more months. All right. Well, that is a really interesting background for the Avengers. And you're right. Like, I've I've taken the name the Avengers just because that's what it was always called. And I've never really questioned that, you know, they're not really avenging anything. (laughs) Or the idea is to stop whatever it is before you have to avenge something. (laughs) I mean, superheroes as a concept are largely reactionary. Yeah. They fight crime. You have to have somebody commit a crime for them to be able to go stop it. You know? Right. Because if they but go the preemptively. Time, yeah. Mm-hmm. Avenging. Yes. What are you guys? Yes. You know. <laughs> All right. So the Avengers was released on May 4th, 2012 and was an instant hit. It was huge with a budget of 220 million the largest marvel budget we'd yet seen Whedon made this movie and blew the doors off the marvel barn up until the avengers the highest grossing marvel movie was iron man with 445 million in profits now to be clear these numbers we're just talking about are just worldwide box office none of this takes into account dvd sales streaming rights merchandising so there are definitely other factors going into how much a movie makes but these are the numbers that that the big people making decisions are taking into consideration when they're building a franchise like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and especially the Avengers. So the Avengers took in almost 1.3 billion in profits. It's almost three times what Iron Man brought in, which was huge. It is the fifth highest grossing movie of all time. It is massive what the avengers is in movie production is a huge earthquake i mean it is just massive so talking about the marvel cinematic universe and kind of the risk they took going into this you know phase of of superhero movies and building this entire universe the avengers is what absolutely solidified that this is a thing the the avengers is the reason why we have jessica jones the avengers is the reason why we have agents of shield the avengers is the reason why we've expanded this storytelling universe into all of these different places so like the impact of the avengers cannot be overstated it is absolutely huge This movie also has a 92% critical score from Rotten Tomatoes. So it wasn't just a big deal as far as the box office, you know, gross goes, but, um, but also critically, it was really, really well received. It is the third highest critical score for MCU movies after Black Panther, 
which has not been released yet, but has been reviewed, which is at 100% right now on Rotten Tomatoes. I've never seen anything quite like that. It should be interesting to see how that goes as we get more critical reviews in for Black Panther, which we are very much looking forward to this month. Um, and Iron Man is at 95%, but The Avengers comes in for the movies as the third highest you know, critically scored um, Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. So that's a pretty big deal, too. I mean, this is by all means the hugest of hits. Um, now, the interesting thing about this is we've got a new director, right? We've got a director in Joss Whedon, right, on this on this movie. Um, as we've discussed, Marvel goes through directors kind of like a hot knife through butter, right? Iron Man and Iron Man 2 director Jon Favreau has opted not to work with the studio again. Incredible Hulk director Louis Leterrier uh, had what you would call a split of mutual enmity. Basically, he hates Marvel. Marvel hates him. That's just how it is. Uh, Kenneth Branagh directed Thor and publicly said that he would be delighted to come back to do another Marvel movie, but then quietly declined when they gave him the chance to do The Dark World. Um, I love that. It's just like quiet shade, like, no, not really. Right, because Kenneth Branagh is British and extremely polite. Exactly. (laughs) So in public, he was like, oh, sure, I'd do another one. And then when they asked him, he was like, no. (laughs) So um, Joss Whedon stepped in to the Avengers in the midst of all of this, all of these directors fleeing from Marvel at this point. And he stepped in and didn't just um, direct it, but he also wrote it. Um, Unlike all of the other Marvel movies, we only have two writer credits. There are no writer credits given to the people who created all of these. Like usually we have all the comic book creators, you know, credited on the Marvel movies, but in the Avengers, that was not the case. Um, We just have Joss Whedon and Zach Penn. Now you may remember Zach Penn. He wrote The Incredible Hulk, which we talked about not too long ago, and which is a fine movie. It was actually one of the better written of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, you know, in phase one. And of course, that's not a terribly high bar considering that some of those movies, we have no evidence that there was a script <laughs> at all. Um, you know, but Hulk, yeah. was, Hulk was pretty good. I mean, Hulk really stands up as far as that storytelling goes. But apparently when Joss Whedon signed on to do Avengers in 2010, he threw out Penn's original script and started over. Penn got a story by credit for the final film, but there's no evidence that any of his original story actually remained in this um, in this movie in the end, that Joss Whedon just completely went and, and tore it down to the rafters and rebuilt. I suspect you and I share a curiosity in wanting to see the Penn Avengers script. I do. I do. First of all, because I think Zach Penn has got some chops. I mean, yes. The Incredible Hulk was a good film. It was a well-written story, you know? And, I want to see yeah. how he juggled all these people. I can't even begin to... I mean, that is a challenge. Like, we're definitely going to talk about how much of a challenge it is to tell that kind of story because it's kind of insane. And And while the Avengers has some issues with some of the storytelling that we're going to get into the achievement that is this movie is, is pretty impressive. Now I am a big Joss Whedon fan. Any of you out there who are not familiar with Joss Whedon, let me just say, you know, creator Buffy, the vampire slayer firefly. Um, he wrote uh, dollhouse. He is one of the executive producers on Marvel's agents of shield, which is a fantastic show. If you're not watching it, please start. It's really, really good. Um, so Joss Whedon is just this incredible, incredible, you know, writer. And I've always admired him as, 
as a writer. And now this is like a big, huge stage for him to, to dance upon, you know, doing this, this, you know, such a visible, such a big thing. He's been kind of a cult hero, you know, since the mid nineties with Buffy, but this is where he's on like a big stage. Now I do admittedly have some Whedon issues. You do. Mm -hmm. But I will file them away because talking about them makes so much more sense with Age of Ultron. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I don't want to cast any shade here because what my issues do not hinge upon his ability to nail story structure because Mm -hmm. he does that. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what we needed in this five-man band that didn't want to play any music together. (laughs) That is the Avengers. So... (laughs) So we, I, I'm just, you know, preview, mm-hmm. there will be more discussion about uh, uh, the man and his work when we get to Age of Ultron. But here, they got exactly the right guy for this challenge, I think. I think they did. I'm not sure it's a challenge that was possible to to be, like, actually met. <laughs> you know, I think he did about as well as you could do with everything that they were trying to do, but it's really interesting. But before we get into that, I just wanted to say, you know, most of you will notice as we have been talking a little bit about Hulk, uh, Edward Norton did not come back. Um, Marvel actually threw some nasty shade at Edward Norton when they didn't ask him to come back. And they said the decision wasn't about money, but they said they wanted, and I quote, an actor who embodies the creativity and collaborative spirit of our other talented cast members, which feels kind of like, wow. I mean, that was mean. I think that they could have taken, you know, some cues from Kenneth Branagh and been maybe a little more polite about this breakup. <laughs> but I mean, they could have, if nothing else, used those magical Hollywood words. We decided to go another direction. We decided to go another direction. Yeah, like anything. But they were throwing hot shade at Edward Norton on that. And I'm just, I'm fascinated by that. I liked Edward Norton. I thought he was great as the Hulk, but I actually really love Mark Ruffalo. So I can't say that I'm disappointed. Mark Ruffalo definitely slides into the dynamic Mm -hmm. well. And obviously I'm not saying Ed Norton couldn't. Yes. But it's really hard to imagine getting the same piece with Norton instead of Ruffalo. Right. Yeah. No, it's it, a it would take a very different flavor. It's a different performance. And I think that the tone of the Incredible Hulk is so, it's so different. It's set so apart from the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. You know, there's it's so true. much yeah. swagger in all of these other movies. And the Incredible Hulk is a kind of a quieter. We've got a more internal story going on. And it was really good, but it's not the same kind of tone. It's not the same kind of movie. And they could have just said that. You know, that we were looking for, like, you know, for a different kind of tone, a little more swagger. Edward Norton is an indie god, you know, or something like that. They could have said a million polite things, but they just really slammed him. It was kind of mean. Well, they, and, you know, much like the directors, they they light that bridge as they cross it. Yeah, so. no, they certainly do. All right. So here we are at the movie, The Avengers. Um, let's go ahead and get started kind of talking about the structure here. Um, this movie is... A hard nut to crack, you know, because one of the things that I like to do with all of my work with storytelling is, you know, you look at a movie, you find out who the protagonist is, who the antagonist is, what the central narrative conflict is. And from there, you can figure out your structure. But here, it is so hard to figure out exactly who the protagonist is or how the protagonist functions in this movie. I mean, I think it's 
functioning well enough, but it's so, so complicated. We have, you know, what is essentially a group protagonist, right? So yes. when you have a group protagonist, and, and one of the big examples that I go to with this all the time is the movie Dodgeball, right? We have five guys on a team and they're all working toward the same goal, right? And in yeah. Dodgeball, we have one guy who is like the main protagonist, but everybody else in the group is also, you know, providing the things that a protagonist provides. The job of the protagonist is to do three things. One, it's your POV character, that this is the person whose perspective we are seeing the movie through, right? The story through. Uh, two, has the most at stake, so that if they lose, then this main character loses all, you know? And then is in active pursuit of the goal. So those are the three things. POV, has the most at stake, active pursuit of, the, of a goal. In this movie, Fury is probably the most active because he's the one that's that's assembling the Avengers. He's the one that's pushing, you know, against the the Security Council. He's the one who's doing everything and moving all the pieces and making everything happen, you know. But he doesn't really have the most at stake. I mean, everybody has the most at stake because, you know, we're being <laughs> invaded by aliens. Yeah, so, you I know, mean, literally everything. Right, right, right. Like the, the world is ending. So, you know, so I mean, so there's that and that that you can kind of give a pass at. But the POV character, you know, we we move from character to character to character. You know, sometimes we're in Iron Man's POV. Sometimes we're in Hulk. Sometimes we're in Cap, you know. Um, so we don't really have a lot of clarity. You bring all of these characters together and they sort of meld together to make one, you know, protagonist, but it is so difficult to kind of follow the lines of conflict here. And then, you know, we've got Loki, who is a great antagonist, you know, he's coming mm -hmm. in, he's stirring stuff up, you know, he's making trouble. Um, and, and stealing the Tesseract and, you know, taking over Selvig, taking over Barton, which is personal. Like, I liked the way that he he came in and he grabbed Barton and Barton was part of the team and that made it a little bit more personal. Um, and Selvig, of course, we we have a relationship with because of Hulk. So, you know, we're, we were into Selvig and all that kind of stuff. And that, that makes it feel personal, you know. But all of it is such an amalgamated kind of mess, but it, it, it still seems to work. I mean, <laughs> how did yeah. you feel about? I mean, it does. It does work, though, right? It does work. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it. As you talk about it, it's almost reminding me of the movie Inside Out. Uh huh. Yes, yes, that's another one. Mm -hmm. Now they actually pare that one down to one emotion that we get to follow. Yes. Mm -hmm. But at the beginning, at least, they're kind of all working more or less towards the same goal. Yeah. And I think this is almost the inverse of that, though. The more I think about it, because you have a group of people who don't want to be a group. Right. And so if they are a collective protagonist, then they're also mostly their own internal antagonist? Well, yeah, we absolutely In a have way? that. Because, well, <laughs> the, what we're moving through is, you know, are these stages in the evolution of the team. Like, we have our first prologue, which is, you know, space baddies are evil, right? You know, so we've got bad guys in space being evil and, and talking with their evil voices so that, you know. He is ready to lead. And our force, our Jitauri, will follow. The world will be his, the universe yours. And the humans, what can they do but burn? A Marvel staple. 
At least one prologue we don't need. Right, exactly. At least one prologue. Then we have kind of a second prologue where Loki, you know, attacks. He, he comes, you know, into the shield bunker. He gets the Tesseract. He takes Barton. He takes Selvig, you know, and he grabs the MacGuffin, which is the Tesseract, right? And the MacGuffin, for those of you unfamiliar with what the MacGuffin is, um, it is basically instant conflict. Just add water because the whole source of, um, of conflict is there's a mutually exclusive conflict. Only one person can win. The other person must lose. Um, and when you have a MacGuffin, which is an item that only one person can possess, that is somewhat easy, like, you know, a, an easy source of conflict that that Loki has the Tesseract and we need to get it back. Right. Because the Tesseract is incredibly dangerous. Um, so we have him stealing the Tesseract from Fury. So with Fury as kind of the the active protagonist, he is the one who is always in pursuit of the one goal then that's sort of where the conflict starts. That means it's where the story starts. But it has a very prologue feel to it because the story itself, I think, maybe is more of the internal conflict of all of these people that need to function together as a team and yet can't. So if that's our story then space baddies and Loki attacks, those are prologues and they feel like prologues because our structure follows that internal conflict within the team itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's as close as I can get. Yeah. And with that in mind, I almost feel like the Loki attacks prologue is one of those rare instances where a prologue actually works. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it does like, happen. Like it's, I'm not a fan it's of prologues. impetus but yeah. to the story. There yeah. is no main character yet because there isn't even an Avengers or right. need for them. There isn't right? a team. So, yeah. So good prologue. We have one bad prologue and one good prologue. Yeah, yeah. I don't you know. You almost the, get it, guys. Yeah. You almost get it. Almost there. So, you know, so I'm looking at this and I see that we have act one is the, you know, the assembling, right? You know, we're calling all the Avengers in. Fury's going to see Cap. You know, we're, we're gathering. And Natasha goes to, and talks to Banner. You know, uh, Coulson goes and talks to Tony. And so we're kind of like pulling all of, of these guys in, right? And so that's... That is our, our first act where we're doing that. Then we've got the team building, you know, um, where they're coming together. They manage to get Loki, despite the fact that they spend more time, like, fighting each other at this point, you know. And they only manage to get Loki because Loki obviously wants to get caught. And we're definitely going to talk about that a little bit later. Then we have act three where they're fighting each other as much as Loki, you know, and his forces when they, when they attack the helicarrier and they cannot get it together. They cannot assemble, you know, and then act four is where they come together as a team. They're finally able to work together. We have the battle of New York and they, you know, they win. So we have this sort of like the structure seems to follow that internal conflict of a team that wants to be a team and yet is fighting itself. Or probably more like needs to be a team. Needs to be a team. Yeah. Because they don't want to be. No, they don't particularly like each other. And it's 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 interesting to see all of these it moves so fast and it's doing so much. And I think, you know, you probably can argue it's doing a little bit too much. There's so much stuff happening in this movie. The fact that it is anywhere near, you know, um, decipherable is, is amazing considering all of the moving parts in this film. So I find the structure to be kind of a fascinating thing. And this is where I've, I've sort of, 
come down on where the the movement of the story is, where that structure is. But I'm still not 100% sure because there's so much happening here that I'm, I'm still deciphering. But I think that's where I'm landing, that we have a team that needs to be a team that is fighting itself. And that's where our structure is on this evolution of this team. Is that what you saw? No, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, because there can't be one single protagonist. Because at this time in Marvel history, you might have come to this movie only because you liked Iron Man or right. Thor or Cap. Mm -hmm. You know, you might have actually not seen everything yet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so you couldn't start picking and choosing favorites at that point well right and i mean this is a whole avengers like we have movies where each of our you know people has you know except for of course widow but we'll talk about that later um that you know that we have movies where each of them are the protagonists of that film and, yeah, and you yeah. know we're watching that but here we have avengers it's all of them it's got to be all of them yeah right yeah, it's kind of reminding me of I can only really think of one other example off the top of my head mm -hmm. of a team that doesn't want to be a team movie that I feel really works. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure I'm just not thinking of others, but Kelly's Heroes comes to mind. Oh, I'm not but even then, with that. Yeah. You have a really tight viewpoint through Clint Eastwood's character. Okay. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's still a bunch of oddballs who have to be a team and don't want to be, but you still get to center on one guy. And man, Avengers never lays that chip down. No. They never pick a favorite. We so. never do. We never do. We have a lot of different roles of the, the protagonist being filled and being kind of tossed back and forth between all of these characters. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't work. Like, I think that Avengers works. You know, it's just that why it works. You know, what yeah. what are the, like, because it is one of the most complicated stories I think I've ever had to analyze and I do think that it works but it works on like some really like varsity level you know like well it's it's doing new things yeah, right like is. we don't have good examples to go to to compare right but the thing is the reason why these are the elements or these are the basis of narrative theory that you have this conflict and that it's you know a protagonist versus an antagonist is a mutually exclusive conflict the reason why those are kind of the quote-unquote rules isn't because it has to be that way but it's because that kind of setup allows you to keep your conflict in the air what mm -hmm. they're doing here is bouncing the conflict off all of these surfaces. It's like it's like watching somebody do parkour. Yeah, that's not how regular people walk or get from one place to another, <laughs> but it works. But he's yeah, moving. Yeah. So I mean, this is the parkour of of narrative work. Like it's 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 keeping that conflict in the air. It's moving it from place to place. It is not doing it in a traditional way, but that does not mean that it's broken. You know, it's right, just absolutely. working in so many different ways. It's got so many different complicated gears grinding against each other, but they're all working. They're all catching. They're all, you know, they're all moving in sync. So it works. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's that's really what I saw mm -hmm. also is that it's one of those you have to if you're going to dig into it, yeah. you're really going to have to think hard about it, yeah. which is kind of crazy for this giant tentpole action movie that is actually the culmination of an experiment, you know? So I guess that gives it, gives us more license to take a step back and look at it. Cause it was like, listen, we were already doing something nobody had done before this, <laughs> but it's no, it, it really does work. Like, it's not like you can't look at it and go, well, there's some stuff here where some of these 
conflict balls get dropped. Oh yeah, some of it does. Or bobbled. Yeah. Of course it does. But it but overall it's like, yeah, no, that this hangs together. It keeps you know? it in the air. It's it's spinning plates. Like it works. It is Like for somebody like me, you know, I look at narrative all the time. I'm analyzing narrative all the time. And usually when I look at a a movie or a story, I can go in and I'm like, here's your protagonist. Here's your antagonist. Here's where it falls apart. These are the reasons why. With the (laughs) Avengers, it's, it's more, here's what's happening. Everything works. I I have kind of like 75% of why it's working, but I know it's working. Um, And it's fascinating to me to kind of like go in and dig and try to figure out everything that's working in there. But like structurally, it does hang together. It's just not in any way a traditional narrative. This is doing something really different, really bold. And there are times where things get lost. You know, some things don't make sense and we don't really get... The, the nice thing about having a single protagonist, you know, is that you're following an emotional arc through this experience, you know, with all of these protagonists, we don't really, they're all like about something, they're all doing something, but not everybody is making a lot of movement throughout the movie, there just simply isn't time to tell that personal side of the story at the same time as you're keeping this conflict bouncing you know, from source to source to source to source to source. And that's okay. You know, I mean, you don't have yeah. to have that. It's just that those are the things that within stories, it's that personal, you know, evolution with one character that gives you that kind of real emotional hit. But that's not what this movie is doing. This is an action movie and it's keeping things moving. And I say it works. I say it's good. No, I agree. I, I agree. <laughs> I am impressed, you know, um, I mean, the way that this usually works in comics is these are ongoing stories. Yeah. And remember, Marvel's big deal is that they injected a whole bunch of soap opera right. mm-hmm. into their superhero stuff so that you didn't always have – you did absolutely eventually fight a big bad guy. But in the meantime, you had Captain America being a man out of time and wondering yeah. what his place was and mm-hmm. Iron Man's off uh, you know, getting drunk and almost losing his company mm-hmm. and – uh, Scarlet Witch is making moon eyes at a robot. And her brother's <laughs> not into it. I mean, you know, you've got all of this stuff bubbling yeah. underneath the surface mm-hmm. that could keep individual monthly issues going. And you, but this is such a different animal. It's like, no, we got to tighten this up. And it it did the things that I needed an Avengers movie to do. Yeah, I think for it, does. it to feel like I was connected to my source material, but it did it in a way that made it work. In this framework, I think I think it absolutely did. Um, so one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about, especially in this movie, um, and and I think in the Marvel Cinematic Universe in general, something mm-hmm. that I that I've seen and I think is maybe a specific superhero aesthetic. I see it more in these kinds of movies than I do more in, in like you know fantasy movies and um, and and this kind of of space than you do in like you know your regular kind of more um, I would say internal story you know kind of um, movie that we have these bad guys who are so clearly bad guys like i'm sorry but here's a hint if you live on a dark rock in the middle of nowhere that's desolate (laughs) if you talk like you've been smoking for 800 years if you 
have really hard armor that covers your whole face. If the bottom part of your face is sort of falling apart as though it's decomposing off your body. If, you know, I mean, all of this stuff, like if your teeth are black, like, you know, you're the bad guy. Like there's just evil. Like there's so clearly, clearly coded evil. I want to destroy everything. Like there's no sense of, you know, one of the things in storytelling is that every antagonist believes that they are the hero of their own story, believes that they are the good guy, right? And that's what makes a really complex and interesting antagonist. But here, like these guys just know they are evil. They are on the side of evil. You know, if you're with Hydra, you know, you're the bad guy. Like you've got to know you're the bad guy. <laughs> so I found that to be really kind of interesting. And, um, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, how that, that aesthetic works with superheroes. Is this the way it always is, that these villains are always just super, super bad? I do feel like you are bringing a certain amount of genre savviness. Oh, I have no savviness. We can't expect, for, <laughs> for we can't expect the people in the story to have genre savviness. No, sure, sure, sure. But I mean, like, you know, like you've seen that Monty Python sketch, right? Where the guys are like, you know, the Nazis and they're, they're you know, in the, the bunker and they're, they have skulls on their caps and they're like, are we the baddies? You know, it's so clear that they're now, the, the thing guys, is, what right? I will point out to you is mm -hmm. before the joke of that happens, you have to assume that they have years of not realizing they're right, the bad exactly, guys. Exactly. <laughs> but they're so, so clearly do... coded as bad guys. Like, there's no I... way that Thanos thinks that he's a decent guy just trying to, you know, do a decent day's work, just doing his thing, you know? Oh, I think as far as Thanos goes, and we'll see this summer, your uh, your expectations are too small. Thanos <laughs> thinks big, baby. Big. Right, but the, I, I don't know. I guess, like, just they're so clearly, clearly evil. Like, evil, so there's I, I no do have, gray area here between good and evil. Like, there's no question. I do have some thoughts here. Yeah. Because this is actually more nuanced than you might think for superhero stories. Really? I think so. Okay. Now, I'm going to go back to literally the beginning yeah. to make an example. But Superman starts out as a social crusader. Okay. He is fighting racketeers because they're preying on the working class. He is fighting slumlords and wife beaters. Mm -hmm. Seriously. And even when Luthor shows up in an actual city held aloft by dirigibles, <laughs> the very next issue... He is also the guy who literally started the depression. Wow. So that's actually really surprisingly complex, yeah, right? That, yeah. This is a way that we are making our larger than life hero mm -hmm. deal with a larger than life villain who is also impacting your life, dear reader, mm -hmm. you know? Right. Mm -hmm. Now, the war and the post-war years suck a lot of that nuance out of superhero stories. Yeah. During the war, they become so patriotic that it's difficult to have certain kinds of stories uh -huh. and then after the war they take a turn for the juvenile so they just get simpler okay. right and mm -hmm. at that point is when the stark good versus evil happens because you're dealing with kids sure, right sure and that genre coding is important mm -hmm. we need to know on the first page we have 10 pages for this story first time that guy shows up give him the weird mustache right you know whatever <laughs> give him the black teeth or give you get a bunch of adventure skull. stories i mean that guy is right. never gonna be a good guy <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah. What 
I, I do joke that there's a lot of people who get, especially Batman villains, that yeah. they get names where it was like, your parents wanted you to be a supervillain. Exactly. <laughs> your name is Edward Nigma. Right. You are... You're not making it out of this one, buddy. Exactly. You need a leotard. Exactly. So there are stories where he and Superboy are friends, and he is working towards the greater good, and a thing happens. Uh-huh. So I'll just say, you know, that that there was a there was a time. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Oh, I, I would also say, in addition to the juvenile stories making a more stark good and evil, there yeah. were also just a lot of really weird adventure stories that maybe didn't even have a clear villain, okay. like. Batman goes to another planet and gets superpowers. Uh-huh. That's the point of the story. Uh-huh. Okay. You know, again, it's more of a thought experiment almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, with Marvel, when they come in, they really bring back all the angst yeah. that you might have had, the kind of real-world grounding that Superman had during the Depression. Mm-hmm. And they bring back gray hats because I have said for a long time that there are only three white hats in the entire Marvel Universe. And then last year they made Cap a Nazi, so I guess there's only two now. <laughs> But even then, nobody could make you wonder if this guy was a supervillain, just a costumed criminal, or a guy who had a point but also terrible methods like Marvel could. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about Magneto, right? Right. Well, Magneto is a complicated villain. Exactly. You know, like he's... he's is he a villain? Right. You he's kind not of a see, nice guy. But you kind of see where he's coming from a little bit, you know? Yes. I mean, and that's and that's the thing. Like those those, you know, kind of gray area bad guys where they're doing the wrong thing, but maybe they're doing it for reasons that you can kind of understand. I mean, you know, when mutants are hunted, you can kind of see him wanting to like yeah. separate out and be like, "No, we're not going to we're not going to take this abuse." Like I can see that. You know, don't go too far, though. Yes, because they also do straight supervillains like Dr. Doom, Mm -hmm. who I guarantee you sees himself as the hero in his own story. Mm -hmm. But we also all know that that story is bullshit. Right. (laughs) He doesn't know. Yes. We know. Yeah. Right. I mean, his name is Doom, but he does not have that (laughs) self-awareness. Now, when you do start getting to that like cosmic level biz, like you're kind of talking about with Thanos, to me, it does sort of make sense that sometimes those guys, they're just evil, you know, because they are a cosmic threat, a universal threat, you know. Now, broadly, I have a theory about how superhero fiction best works, Mm -hmm. and it comes down to taking interesting problems and externalizing them into something that can be punched or shot with laser or hit with a shield or whatever. (laughs) But if you make that allegory too broad, then it's a cartoon, right? It doesn't Mm -hmm. actually land the allegory. Right. And if you make it too on the nose, then you're trivializing truly terrible things that are going on in the real world. Sure, yeah. I mean, that whole thing, Luther started the Depression, Mm -hmm. that was over 12 pages later. Yeah. And we didn't talk about it again, Mm -hmm. partly because that's how comics worked at the time, but also... Yeah, but Superman punched him and the depression is still here. Maybe don't draw attention to that, you know? (laughs) Sure, right. In the process of this, I think the Marvel movies have taken an interesting turn where they have basically turned into character studies with action set pieces. Mm -hmm. They are so focused on the hero, both inwardly and outwardly, right? Mm -hmm. That it feels like giving the villains any kind of interiority is just getting in the way of what they actually want to do. Right. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's good storytelling. I don't know if it's the best way to adapt the way superhero stories work in comics into the movies, but it's it's really the way that Marvel has decided to handle it. It's one of the reasons we don't have very many good villains. Yeah. They're not 
really the point. Yeah, you they're know. not they're not complex at all. And it's not necessarily bad storytelling. I mean, it's right. functional. You've got a bad guy, you know, basically all you need, the antagonist has one job and that's to block the protagonist to make the right. protagonist's yeah. life hell. Right? And as long as they're doing that, then structurally, then functionally for the storytelling, that's okay. I just find it so interesting how how clearly and unambiguously and there's just no wiggle room, there's no looking at this guy and thinking, yeah, it makes sense, you know, why no, he would I think want you're to do right. these things. I think you're right about that. Like they, they have either larger than life goals mm-hmm. or they have a goal that is very specifically centered on the hero, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And your two examples that subvert that, and I think prove the point then, because mm-hmm. there are two, yes. like what I would say, two good villains in the MCU at this point. Mm-hmm. And one is Loki, oh, yeah. who people keep reading as an anti-hero, even though he declared war on our entire planet and killed Coulson. Right. But everybody still keeps reading this guy like an anti-hero. Yeah. You know? Well, because he's got G- vulnerability. He's our right. only villain that has vulnerability. And vulnerability, but he's still a super bad guy. He's a super <laughs> bad guy. But if he has vulnerability, then there means there could be a redemption arc for him. And that's what pulls us into that. And also when you've got a character like Loki, when you've got a villain like Loki in a field of villains that are, you know, just irredeemably bad villains with no, you know, shades of of humanity within them, you know, then he stands out. And also he's Tom Hiddleston. There's a lot of reasons why Loki stands out. He's fantastic on every score, but he does have that. You can look at him, you know, from his point of view. And here we have this guy with these really bad daddy issues feeling overshadowed by his big brother, you know, and like you can see that there's real vulnerability going on within Loki. That makes him, you know, potential redemption arc. And man, we love those stories. Here's the thing, though. My other good example is Tombs from Uh Spider-Man Homecoming. Okay, I haven't seen that yet. I will tell you, he also has vulnerability. Uh Nobody is reading that cat as an antihero. Oh, interesting. I I mean, I will be interested in hearing your opinion of him when you see it. I can't wait. But I mean, he's a blue-collar guy who falls bass-ackwards into supervillainy because he's got to keep his mortgage paid and his employees on the job. Wow. And he is... Not good. Like, nobody is going to try and read that guy. He's got vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. that I understand, Mm -hmm. you know, as a husband and father kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm also like, yeah, but those are still super weapons. And you tried to murder that 15-year-old several times. Yes. (laughs) That's really interesting. Yeah. Now, so... Just broadly, I actually don't know that we get that many clear good versus evil stories in the MCU Mm -hmm. as much as we get very unsubtle villains. Yes, exactly. It's Mm -hmm. not that they might not have something going on that we could identify with. It's that we never get to find out. Uh, No, we never we never get to that level of complexity with these villains, with the exception of Loki, you know, and apparently in this movie, Mm -hmm. in this movie in particular, I think it's pretty obvious they are playing up the Loki vulnerability a lot here because I don't actually think he sees himself as the hero of this. Mm -hmm. He's just like like a grifter in way over his head. Oh, he is so in way over his head. And I love the way that we have them threatening him. You question us. You question him. He who put the scepter in your hand, who gave you ancient knowledge and new purpose when you cast out. Defeated. I was a king, the rightful king of Asgard. 
betrayed. Your ambition is little and born of childish need. That is so beautiful. Now, and Loki's a big deal, right? So I'm actually interested in the person who could say that to Loki. Yeah. Right? So, yes, tell me more about your Thanos, and it'll be a couple more months now. (laughs) All these years later. No, I think it's it's really interesting. And Loki is kind of that, you know, he is that exception to what we're seeing in so many of these other movies, these bad guys that are just super, super bad, you know, Um, and I find it really interesting. But, yeah. You have in our notes, so I'll bring it up because yes. I actually have a companion piece to this that he reminds you a bit of Spike from, from Buffy. Buffy. Yeah, he does a little bit, Loki. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of sense, right? That impetuousness that like, oh, I'm just going to go do the thing. Yeah, that is the source of his downfall is that he's just so and it's so much a part of his vulnerability is what breeds his villainy. You know, it's what makes it worse. It's what he goes out and does all these crazy things in response to that vulnerability. And uh, and yeah, he does remind me a lot of Spike from Buffy. I mean, I'll tell you something. If Loki ever falls in love, you ever give Loki a romance? Oh, man. I mean, that is going to, the MCU will explode. People will lose their minds because that guy being brought back by love, being redeemed by love, that would be crazy. Oh, yeah. I I have a lot of feelings about that. Right. Um, <laughs> it would be really good. <laughs> he also reminds me of a line mm-hmm. from Douglas Adams, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a moment where a police officer catches Dirk doing something in a crime scene he shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. And Dirk's like trying to pretend that he's all innocent. And the cop actually says something to him that I took as a life lesson. Yeah. Which was, you have the problem that a lot of very clever people have. You've assumed that everyone else is an idiot. <laughs> and I was like, uh, life lesson learned. Thank you very, very much. Nice. And it feels like Loki also, like he shows up, he falls through space, he gets found by whatever, mm-hmm. the Chitari or Thanos, and he's like, I got this. Right. And then he gets deep enough that he's like, no, I don't, but it's too late now. <laughs> so I'm just going to run with it. <laughs> Tiger by the tail. Let's see how this goes. <laughs> It is. I think that's why I I love Loki so much. Loki is always so much fun. Every time he shows up, I just absolutely love him. But yeah, and he does. And I feel the same way about him that I do about Spike from Buffy. I think there's great stuff to be done with Loki. I'd love Loki to get his own movie at this point, honestly. I, I don't know that that's in the cards, but let's really see what that guy's life is like when he's not in the thick of well i mean he's always going to be in the thick of a scheme yeah exactly well he's a trickster hero you can't have loki not be a trickster hero and you can't have him turn suddenly good because that would be terrible but the things that you can do with loki i mean spike from buffy is absolutely a great kind of blueprint for what the kinds of things you can do with loki without losing his essential loki-ness you know you know i'm gonna make a comic book recommendation to you right now yes and to our listeners, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of stuff that went into this. So you may have to scan a Wikipedia page just to make sure that you're up to date. Uh-huh. But there is a story called Loki, Agent of Asgard. Mm-hmm. And essentially, because gods and uh, ideas in, like turned into people mm-hmm. is what they are, he reinvents himself and claims that he's not evil anymore. Uh-huh. And there's reason to believe him. Okay. Yeah. But Asgard decides he has to prove it and so they turn him into their the agent so it's like when we have a problem you're gonna go out and handle the problem all right 
And most of the time, they're very subtle things. It's like, don't blow stuff up. If we wanted to blow stuff up, we'd ask Thor to do it. Right. Okay. <laughs> and and I think you would really enjoy it because he is still on the make constantly. Yeah. But he's also working towards a greater good that you can you can really get behind. So like by it's that like point, a genuine redemption arc for Loki. Yes, oh, absolutely. I, like I mean, in as much as Loki is ever going to be redeemed, and right. I don't want to give too far too much away, but it's it's very good. And he's working for the All Mother, which are like three goddesses running Asgard mm-hmm. now, and they are just unprepared to deal with his nonsense. But of course, he's still trying to get up to it. I would recommend. Okay, all right. I think it's going to scratch the itch that we're never going to get with a Loki. <laughs> Probably movie. never going to get. All right. Well, speaking of scratching itches, let's go ahead and move into our next topic, which is a topic that we always have to hit, that we always have to talk about with every Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. Uh, The women. Yeah. (laughs) So we do okay. We have basically like, I don't know, three women and then like a woman on the Shadow Council that we can tell it's a woman because of her voice and her hair, but we don't actually see her. She's not actually a character, so I don't know if she counts. Um, But we have Pepper, you know, in the beginning with Tony, right? So we have her. um, And this is some good Pepper. It's some good Pepper. I got to say, Joss Whedon writing Tony Stark and Pepper Potts is exactly what I needed to happen. <laughs> that dialogue. I, this is might fantastic. be the best Pepper. It's as far great. as I'm concerned. It's great. She's like very the whole good. 12% thing. Stark Tower is your baby. Give yourself 12% credit. 12%. An argument can be made for 15. 12%? Well, I my baby? did do all the heavy lifting. Literally, oh. I lifted the heavy things. I'm going to pay for that comment about percentages in some subtle way later, aren't I? Not going to be that subtle. I love that. I love that yes. whole the bouncing back and forth. That's one of the things Joss Whedon does really, really great is that, you know, within a scene, people will bounce, you know, a particular concept and, and just bounce it back and forth. And you'll see a three beat of, you know, a line happen in one scene. And it's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And the 12% thing is absolutely an example of that kind of, you know, kind of fun dialogue jujitsu that, that Whedon really loves to play with. Um, but Pepper was really strong in that scene. I really liked it. It was the first time with Pepper and Tony that I really felt them as a couple. Right. You know, that they yes. really worked together. So that was real in one scene, you know, basically that was it. Um, but it was really nicely done. Uh, we have Maria Hill, you know, who is played by uh, Kobe Smulders, who is fantastic. I really love her. She's kick ass. She's smart. We don't get a strong, like, sense of personality from her. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I don't need her to be personable. I don't need her to make anybody cupcakes. She's kicking ass. I really like her. I thought she was good. Yeah. I mean, she's Lady Fury, right? Yeah. So that's, I, I mean, I hate to frame it that way, but she's, and, and comic book wise, when Nick Fury's no longer in charge of S.H.I.E.L.D., Maria Hill steps in. Yeah. Okay. So, I, I mean... That level of competency we definitely get, even if we don't get to know her well. Right. I mean, I love her competence. I love her strength. I love that she is, you know, right there running the show, making things happen. So I like her a lot. And I think she's really good. And I always like that character whenever she shows up. Um, And of course, we've got Widow. You know, we've got Natasha Romanoff, right? Um, She's really great. I love that opening scene. We need you to come in. Are you kidding? I'm working. This takes precedence. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. This moron is giving me everything. I don't give everything. Look, you can't pull me out of this right now. Natasha. Barton's been compromised. 
Let me put you on hold. I, that's pure widow for me too, where it's just like I am working. I know. I and the guys who are getting worked are just like, no, she's not. Oh, I am. Oh yeah, I am. She's like, you have no idea who's in charge here. I am completely in charge here. So I love that. I also really loved the subtlety with which she's there. She's working. She's like, Colson, really, I have no time for this. This idiot is giving me everything. And then he says, Barton's been compromised. And boom, that's it. She's in mm-hmm. business. She takes all of these guys out and then she picks up her shoes and just wanders out. Like, I I love all of that. I thought it was wonderful characterization. I really liked her throughout the whole thing. We see her doing that again later with Loki when she's mm-hmm. pretending that vulnerability. She works him. Touch Barton, not until I make him kill you. Slowly, intimately, in every way he knows you fear. And then he'll wake just long enough to see his good work. And when he screams, I'll split his skull. This is my bargain, you mewling quim. You're a monster. (laughs) Oh, no. You brought the monster. So, Banner. That's your play. What? Loki means to unleash the Hulk. Keep Banner in the lab. I'm on my way. Send Thor as well. Thank you for your cooperation. I love um, this moment with Banner, you know, when they're having this discussion and he's talking about the little girl that she used to lure him out to this place. I uh, assume the whole place is surrounded. Just you and me. And your actress, Bunny, is she a spy too? They start that young. I did. And that moment is so telling. And this is the kind of stuff that Joss Whedon does. He'll lay down a couple of words. He'll give you just enough context that you can fill out the rest of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until, you know, much, much later that I had been watching Agent Carter and we'd had some, you know, references to the the Russian orphanage that trains these young girls to be assassins. You know, they called it the Red Room. Um, That gave me so much more insight. And granted, it was extra, extra textual to the Avengers. So at the time that I watched the Avengers, I didn't really understand it. But it gave me so much more understanding and insight into Widow. And it made me like her even more. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think yeah. that she's no, I fantastic. Agree. The one thing that I don't get, though, is this, we're using this, this red in my ledger, you know, um, thing for Nat. And I mean, I get, I know, red in your ledger means that you're you're in debt to somebody. She doesn't like to be in debt. And I think that she considered herself to be in debt to Barton. But then the way that Loki was talking about it was that her ledger was about her guilt over killing so many people. Your world in the balance, and you bargained for one man. Regimes fall every day. I tend not to weep over that. I'm Russian, where I was. And what are you now? It's really not that complicated. I got red in my ledger. I'd like to wipe it out. Can you? Can you wipe out that much red? Drakov's daughter. Sao Paulo. The hospital fire. Barton told me everything. Your ledger is dripping. 
It's gushing red. And you think saving a man no more virtuous than yourself will change anything? And I didn't understand which way they were talking about red and her ledger. Is it guilt or is it debt? I think it gets to be both. Okay. All right. All right. I mean, because I, I think her, based upon what we hear about Nat and Clint, he saves her. Or at least he brings her in from the cold. Right, right, right yeah. Um, he was supposed to kill her and he doesn't. And he doesn't. Yeah. So mm-hmm. she feels like she owes him a debt. Okay, can I ask you a question, though? Is yeah, there any yeah. circumstance in the world where if Natasha doesn't want Clint to kill her, he's going to be able to kill her? Like, I don't, I, I guess that's part of what I don't believe. I don't believe for yeah. a minute that Barton can, can outwit, outsmart, outgun Widow in any way. I also do not buy it. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a handy, I think it's a handy way to make us care about Barton yeah. a little bit and uh-huh. to hook Natasha in at a personal level, which not a lot of people have personal hooks yeah. in this. Yeah. But but the more we get to find out about these people, the more I'm just like, how did that actually happen? How in what circumstance does he get the jump on her in any way? It is very difficult for me to imagine. I can't. That is the that is the biggest piece of Natasha clues that are dropped in the movies that I drop for my own personal headcanon. Right. <laughs> you just whistle that right out, right? <laughs> Or I rewrite it so that she's just like realizes she's a bad person and allows him to take her in. Allows, yeah, because I don't think that he does anything that she doesn't let him do. Right. I mean, maybe maybe she sees him do something really good Mm -hmm. that makes her realize she's a bad person. Yeah, or maybe he like talks to her in a way that that got her over. Although he doesn't seem like much of a talker either, so he's not a charmer. I don't know. I don't know what he is. But yeah. A graveyard for us to whistle past. Right. So the red and the ledger. I think it's guilt mm-hmm. generally because she did many, many bad things. Because she did a lot of bad things, right. And again, this is a little extra textual also in general, but especially for this movie. The Red Room is not really interested in your free will. Right. You know. I imagine you're, not. You're raised as a child. They're, they're little girls, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like she probably did a whole bunch of awful stuff before she even had the framework in which to realize that it's awful stuff. Well, sure. But now she does. Right. And so looking backwards, she's just broadly guilty, but she is also specifically guilty in that she owes Clint. Mm-hmm. That's what I got. All right. So, yeah, I guess I didn't have clarity on exactly what the red in the ledger was supposed to mean and how that was supposed to work for Nat. And when we have so little with all of these things going on with all of these characters we have a a hint of something with each of them but we never really get a whole story a whole internal movement for any of them yes you know yeah i think that's the trick right you assume thor's hook into the movie is loki and we're fine with it even though we don't really do much with it yeah exactly but we assume it and move on it's fine Mm -hmm. we're given enough of an actual like kind of gut level emotional hook with natasha that we want to know more Mm -hmm. And there just isn't room for it. There isn't, but it's but it's intriguing, and I think that that it's they very do a good job yeah. with what they've got. And I'm very very interested in her, so I think that she's fantastic. So that's our three women plus you know plus or minus the lady on the council. Is there any? Did I miss any women? Is that uh, it? I mean, that's no. It, I think right? that's basically it. That's yeah. it. Okay. So 
that's the women and i think like the women that we have fairly well done you know again yeah, like yeah. we don't have anybody dancing around with a arc reactor between their boobs so there's that which is nice you know we have tripped over that bar we have gotten over that bar um but let's talk a little bit about the greater sense of diversity pretty much everybody in this movie is white right i mean we have some yes. extras in new york fury. during the battle of new york we've got fury but aside from that... No, that's about it. That's about it. That's really, yeah. So, yeah, so we're, we're really not doing well on having any diversity in our heroes. You know, we've got one woman, yeah. everybody else is white, and we've got Nick Fury, you know, running the show. But it does feel weird. I agree. There's There's kind of a school of thought going around mm-hmm. in, I guess contemplative fandom yes you know that is talking about when you're adapting these characters Mm -hmm. that are so mired in their straight white maleness yeah because of the time whatever i mean it doesn't make it okay but it's like here's what we're working with right right because this is what you this is what was the original the original concepts of these characters the suggestion is if there isn't a compelling reason for the character to remain a straight white man it might be worth changing one or all of those characteristics. Yeah, right. If there's no real reason why they have to be that. And Christian, too. I mean, let's just throw that in there as well. We were talking a lot about anti-Semitism, you know, which we mm. just yeah. whistle right past. Even in this movie, we reference it very slightly with Cap. But we don't really go there, you know. Um, so it's, yeah, change, unless there's a real strong, compelling story reason why all of these guys must be all of those things, straight, white, and male, um, you know, why not mix that up a little bit? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of them that mm-hmm. I think you could make the case for. Sure. Uh, with Tony Stark as evil capitalist trust fund baby trying to do good, I mean... Let that guy be white. He, like, let's own all of that, he right? He is the personification of, of white male entitlement. Absolutely. Play with that. <laughs> and he's not a good guy. Like, you see that, right. that that white male entitlement does kind even of... Even when he's trying to do good. Even when he's trying to do good, it does kind of cloud his judgment. So I think that, yeah, I think that it works for him to be a straight white man fine. You know? Tony Stark, hashtag not all Iron Man. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, We talked in the Cap episode mm-hmm. that... That whole Aryan ideal socking Hitler in the jaw is a thing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But since they jettisoned the rest of his Jewishness right. overall, mm-hmm. wh- why not make him black? There's sure. even a comic book precedent. Oh, yeah? For this. Yeah, they did. Uh, there was a story called Red, White, and Black where mm-hmm. they talked about the first batch of people that they tested the super serum on before, oh, before they perfected Cap? it. Ki- yeah. Mm-hmm, kind of Tuskegee Airmen style, if you're familiar oh, with that story. Oh, no. Most of them didn't come out of it really good. One of them did. And uh-huh. uh, his grandson is actually um, a flag-garbed superhero called the Patriot now. Uh-huh. So, I mean, there's there's a precedent that you could you could have done that thing. Since we're taking away the Jewish aspect, let's, let's look at this. Right. Right? Yeah. You could have done that. We're kind of stuck with Banner because I guess we're still nodding at Incredible Hulk. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And then when I pointed out to you that Heimdall is black, so we could have had a black Thor, then you and I both kind of went to the races. We had that conversation. Imagine (laughs) if Thor had been played by Idris Elba. Oh, my God. How fantastic would that have been? 
I'm way into it. Uh, like, I'm so upset that's not what happened. And I it's know, 10 years later. <laughs> I know. You said that. And I was, my whole existence lit up. And I was like, that would have been fantastic. You know? Um, yeah. No, that but it's a worthwhile a question, right? Yeah. Like, when we are adapting these, frankly, ancient characters right. in a lot of ways, if there's not a reason for them to be straight white men. Yeah. Think about doing a change up. There's no Just, reason for that to be the default for everybody. Yeah. And and in fact, when when and if we ever get around to talking about Iron Fist, that was actually an opportunity to kind of undo a problem from the comic book. And they still doubled down on straight white dude. <laughs> I haven't seen Iron Fist. I've heard it so bad. It's. I also have not seen Iron Fist, but I'm a fan of the character. Okay. So it's why. Anyway, it's just. I. I would like. I would like some thought yeah. put into this in the future, and I'm just not sure if we're gonna get it. Well, you know? well, we'll see. I mean, you know, we are just about to see Black Panther come out and be one of the biggest hits in the history of cinema. So that is going to be interesting. <laughs> it looks like it. Yeah, that will be a really yeah. interesting discussion we will be having in a couple of weeks. <laughs> And and one of our opportunities later in the franchise yeah. to replace Steve Rogers as Captain America mm-hmm. is uh, Sam Wilson, oh, the Falcon. I love so him. I love him so much. We'll talk about I mean, him based very on soon. comic book stuff. Yeah, he's an option for that, right. right? So I mean, there's options for that with the legacy hero stuff, but it would just even if they introduce any new ones, yeah. just like for crying out loud. Now we, we do have some people of color that get that get cast. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, Zoe Saldana is mm-hmm. Gamora. I mean, we have some folks to talk about in the future, but right. they all kind of stand out, unfortunately, as being unicorns, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, I think you and I both agree. We'd like to see more unicorns. <laughs> I'd like to see more normalization of the yeah. the casting in these movies, that if there is no reason why it must be a straight white male, let's go ahead and let you know, the the heroes look like what America looks like. The heroes look like what the world looks yeah. like. Um, and that's something that I would love to see. And I think that one of the things, like right now we're in phase one, we're still in the very beginning of this. We have been seeing some movement get a little bit better. Um, Absolutely. So, Th- so there's real potential. There. there is real potential. There I is, agree. There is. So I think that we're going in the right direction with that. But yeah, it is. It is one of these things that you're sitting there watching this movie, and I mean, it's great, and you've got Joss Whedon's storytelling and dialogue and all this stuff happening, which is fantastic. But it is just so homogenous, you know. And it is, it gets a little old after a while, you know? So it'll be nice to see that as we move through the Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of open up a little bit. Um, So we've got our group protagonist, right, in this movie. Um, All of these characters that we're bringing into the Avengers, that we're doing a little bit of something with. And I kind of wanted to go through them and sort of talk about each one, you know, in turn and sort of get your sense of of how you felt the character worked in this particular setting. Let's go ahead and start with Tony. Because it's Robert Downey Jr. and I love him. so <laughs> Also chronological sort of. Sure, so. sure, sure. Um, so how'd you like him in this? Mm-hmm. Let me say broadly that we all have to fight before we team up is the Marvel way. Okay. All right. Like that is, that is the Marvel way. Mm-hmm. So that is a nod towards the source material that I approve of. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, with Tony, he works really well. I think he's the one who gets the most obvious arc. Sure. Mm-hmm. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the beginning, he's all you know flippantly talking to Cap about he just cut the wire, and then at the end, he actually does make the sacrifice play, which I thought was really interesting because so, that was the so reason big, yeah. Cap could not respect him. I've seen the footage. The only thing you really fight for is yourself. You're not the guy to make the sacrifice play, to lay down on a wire and let the other guy crawl over you. I think I would just cut the wire. It's really interesting because when Cap says that to Tony, I don't see anything in Tony that registers any kind of shame. Yeah, I should be doing that. I should be that guy. Like, And yet we see him arc from, you know, this this rogue, I work alone, you know, I'm out for me to the guy who does, you know, grab the nuclear weapon and throw it into space at the very real risk of his own annihilation. I thought that was actually, that was probably one of my favorite parts of the movie is that we do kind of see that arc. We don't really, we don't spend a a lot of time putting Tony under the kind of pressure that would, that would demonstrate that sort of arc in, in a regular story, in a regular circumstance. But I think it worked. Did you buy that, that sacrifice play for Tony? I did, Mm -hmm. mostly because I think that Steve Rogers brings out the good in people. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was him saying that. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll tell you what else. Watching these, you know, relatively close together. Yes. Tony, with no hesitation, grabbing the missile and flying it up, reminded me quite a lot of Skinny Steve throwing himself on the grenade. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's no hesitation there. It's a reflection of that because that's who Cap is. Yeah, you he know? brings out the best in everybody. So do you think that Tony looks up to Cap that way? Do you think that deep down inside, underneath all that, that swagger and that snark, that that Tony looks at Cap and thinks, that's the kind of man I want to be? I think a little bit, but he would not admit it. Well, let's not forget, and I think, Cap is a contemporary and a friend of his father's, too. That's what I was about to say. I think most of his animosity for Cap is wrapped up in daddy issues. yeah. I mean, you know Howard never shut the hell up about Steve Rogers. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, that could be... I I think that that's kind of... I I don't think that we have any textual evidence for that, you know, in the movie itself. But I kind of see that as being part of that for him. He does say, this is the guy my dad would never shut up about. Mm -hmm. And also says, everything special about you came out of a test tube. Yep. And I was like, that's a guy who knows where the buttons are. That's true. You know, like... He heard Howard talk about it. So I think he showed up mm-hmm. externalizing that anger at Howard at Captain America. And then Captain America actually humbles himself to Tony mm-hmm. to get the stuff done on the helicarrier, yep. mm-hmm. you know, and and then Tony realizes that he's not the kind of guy who should make a plan yeah. at the end, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think there are some places where he gets a good he gets a good talking to. He gets a good example. Mm-hmm. And then he just has a moment where he's like, well, I'm not overwhelmed because I'm by God, Tony Stark. But I also know that this is not my bag. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who should be in charge here? That looks like you. Yeah. And, you know, along the way, he's also I think Tony is genuinely trying to be a better version of himself. Yeah. And. That will go off the rails in more movies. Right, right. But, but, but we here, just right saw here, him he's like, get a second lease on life in Iron Man 2. He thought he was going right, to die. Right. Yeah. And then he's ready to throw it away to save people. Yeah. That's, yeah, he's great. Yeah. And, and it's not only Cap, but I mean, I think Steve really does. I, I, I think Steve also does the same thing to a lesser extent for uh, 
Clint and Natasha in this. Oh, sure. Sure. Like, he's the one who shows up and gives them permission to, like, well, just get, get dressed. We're doing the thing then. Right, right. Well, you and know. he also doesn't judge Banner, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, hi. They told me you'd be coming. Word is you can find the cube. Is that the only word on me? Only word I care about. That mm-hmm. Cap is just interested in in who Banner is and him being a hero and him being his best self. So Cap really kind of feels like the center, you know, like the, the moral heartbeat, the center of this group of people, right? Yeah, if we start playing five-man band roles, yeah. he's definitely the heart. He's definitely the heart. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, so that's really interesting. Okay, so let's, you know, we've been talking about Cap. Let's go ahead and talk about Cap, right? Okay. So here we have this man out of time. God, I don't know if there are many scenes in many movies that I love more than that opening scene where he's punching, you know, the bag. I went under. The world was at war. I wake up, they say we won. He didn't say what we lost. We've made some mistakes along the way. Some very recently. You here with a mission, sir? I am. Trying to get me back in the world? Trying to save it. It is so wonderful. I love tormented cap because the thing is like you know anybody who knows me knows like i hate the white hat i hate the super good guy i hate the capital g good just because they're good yet i still love cap i love him with my whole heart (laughs) even though he's the moral compass even though he's the super good guy like there's just something about him and again like you know we were talking about in in the captain america episode that He's so genuinely good. Like there's such a genuine and there's always, it's always, always matched, if not exceeded by intense vulnerability. And I think that that makes him just something so incredibly special. And I mean, he has all these kind of like sanctimonious lines that from anybody else, I would absolutely (laughs) hate. You know, the last time I was in Germany and saw a man standing above everybody else, we ended up disagreeing. I'd sit this one out, Cap. I don't see how I can. These guys come from legend. They're basically gods. There's only one god, man. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Like that kind of thing. Um, always I find annoying and sanctimonious. And yet, when Cap says it, I'm like, yeah. You know? <laughs> like I will help you out with that line mm-hmm. even more. Yes. Because what I love, I, I don't need to see an entire movie about Captain America being sad about everybody that's gone. Right. But nodding at it is perfect. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And when he drops down in Germany and he's wearing a Captain America outfit for the first time, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, well, I mean, it's, it hasn't been that long for him, but you know what I mean? Like it's, there hasn't been a Captain America around and he's had that conversation with Coulson about the suit and all that stuff. I feel like he's almost playing the role of Captain America at that point to, like, get himself back in. Yeah, to kind of and access is, himself again, to get a sense of who right. he is. He's a man out of time. You know, he So it's a little more swagger yeah. than you would normally get from him mm-hmm. and a little more grandstandy. Yeah. And it's over by the time he has to point out that Thor and Tony are children. Right. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, I feel like, yeah, he's trying to get. So there's a little more vulnerability for you. I yeah. Think. Like, he's trying to get himself back into the right, Captain fake America it till you mode. Make it, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. And I think that, you know, I, I, I like Cap. I, I want to see Cap with a little edge. 
I want to see Cap get a little, you know, grungy. <laughs> you know, I want to <laughs> see that. Like, I, I like him tormented. I like him, you know, angry. I want to see Cap angry. Like, life has not been particularly good to Cap. You know, it's true. Um, yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure dude's still a virgin. You know, <laughs> I this may be why Natasha's concerned for him in Winter Soldier. <laughs> I'm just saying we'll get there when we get there. But, you know, I'm just saying, um, you know, a man like that <laughs> looks like that still has not gotten laid. I'm sorry, but that's just not fair. Right. You know? It's it's true. No, it's true. It's true. <laughs> but, you know, he's he's. I, I love his character. I want to see like some movement in the character. I want to see him. I want to see Dark Cap like that. Honestly, mm-hmm. is like my favorite thing. Um, well, I think Infinity War is your moment. It may, it may well be. It may well be. <laughs> um, so I mean, these... I mean that beard. <laughs> <laughs> These are all the things like I love all of this stuff in Cap, but I also love him as the heart of this group as as the light that shines into everybody else, like the way that Loki mm-hmm. touches his staff to somebody's heart and then takes control of them. It's like Cap does the opposite, like he pushes his light into other people and lets Ooh. them become the best parts of themselves. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. So I really we, yeah. we can't say anything else about him. That was perfect. That was, let's go. I, on. I love him. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about Banner. What did you think about Banner in this? I I really like what happens. I like Banner being around, mm-hmm. and I like Ruffalo. You know, bannering around the joint. Yeah. I don't know that I necessarily buy anything that's going on with that guy. Okay, nothing with Banner. I love Ruffalo. I love Hulk as a concept. Nothing makes sense for me. We have yeah. this whole thing with, you know, it's been a year since his last incident, you know, according to Nat in the beginning when they meet in India, right? It's been a year since his last incident. Um, so he does have some control going on. He's able to stay calm when everybody around him is getting freaked out. Tony pokes him, you know, and tries to make him mad, tries to bring yeah. up the Hulk, which, by the way, Tony... Jesus, Smart. you know, and he's so calm and he's so chill about the whole thing. Um, then we get to this whole thing, like he becomes Hulk and he destroys everything, you know, when they're on the helicarrier, when they've got that first uh, thing where, where everybody's they're coming to, to rescue Loki. Um, so we have him as Hulk there. He's out of control. He hurts Nat. He chases her. You know, he, he doesn't have control over it. And that's Banner's, you know, biggest nightmare that he's going to destroy things that he doesn't want to destroy because he doesn't have control. So we've got that. Then we have this moment where he says, you know, and it's this great line. Dr. Banner, now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret, Cap. I'm always angry. Right? In, in, in any context where it was actually textually supportable, it'd be great. Like, I'm it'd always, be amazing, yeah. I'm always angry, right? Which is patently not the case, you know? We see him hanging out with Tony. Cap and Tony are fighting. And Banner's just there eating blueberries, like hanging out, being chill. You know, like he's the one who's not fighting with anybody. He's not angry with anybody. He gets brought into this situation. And even when he's like, oh, they really want me in a submerged metal container, you know, like even then. (laughs) He's he's mostly bemused by his situation, really. So the I'm always angry, great line absolutely unsupportable textually that is absolutely not the case and then we have his final in the battle of new york hulk shows up 
right? He's there. He's ready to Hulk out during that entire thing. His side, he's always clearly, you know, what side he's on. He knows what's going on. He seems to have consciousness of his surroundings, of what he's doing. He's working he in saves concert. Tony. Yeah. I am a god, you dull creature. And I will not be bullied by that. Puny god. Yeah, and and... Again, I don't want to go too far down the road, right. but as soon as we need him to be a problem again, like in another movie, mm-hmm. he is. Right. right. Like there's just no I, I I will actually point out Stan Lee probably was the first one to realize this since the guy was gone in like issue three. Yeah. But it's like Hulk on a team does not make sense. Right. You like can't. at all. And that's the thing, is that he's gotta be the you know, like the rogue guy. He's gotta be the rogue hero. Like he's gotta be out there and making him into a hero as someone that that he can't control you know like any good or bad he does as hulk you don't blame him for or credit him for because he supposedly has no control but in this fight he's he's totally and that's i think hulk has some essential problems with him like the hulk on a conceptual level but if that's what you've got you've got to work with what you've got rather than making him shapeshift into whatever it is you want in the moment like i love this moment with him where he's talking about loki right he's like i don't think we should be focusing on loki that guy's brain is a bag full of cats you could smell crazy on him (laughs) great line yeah doesn't sound like banner to me (laughs) You know? I mean, I would love to see, especially if it had survived this movie, yeah. like a version of Banner that is incredibly insightful. Oh, yeah. Because he's basically Zen. That he's the one who can, he's the one in, you know, in the group that always tells the truth. Like, and that yeah. that is a spike element from Buffy. You know, those of you who haven't watched Buffy, I'm sorry, you're going to have to go watch it. It's well worth it. But like, we have those kinds of characters, the ones that always tell the truth, the ones that don't care what anybody thinks. You know, the ones that say the things that nobody else is willing to say. Banner could be that dude. I would love to see that. We get a little bit of that in some spaces, but like he is he is shape-shifting all over the place and you never really know which banner you're going to get in any particular scene. Yeah, I don't... I. It's kind of like we talk about the movie structure broadly works. That's kind of how I feel about the Hulk. Yeah. Like it, it broadly works because I like it, mm-hmm. but it... Don't look too closely at it. No, I like <laughs> all of the different banners that we get and the different hulks that we get. <laughs> yes. I like them yes. all, but none of them are in any way consistent. Just make one out of those guys. Yeah, give me give me that? one. Give me one. Um, all right, we've already talked about Nat, I think, to a great extent. So I feel like we've covered her pretty well. Is there anything else that you wanted to bring up about Nat or that you want to talk about her in, in you know, working within this team? No. No, I think we I think we it. did cover it when we talked about her. Like she just makes a lot of sense here as a guilty person trying to make good is an excellent motivation for her to next level herself for the Avengers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Like I buy her arc completely. Yes. No. So, I, I love the anti Hulk. I think she's fantastic. <laughs> Here's the thing though. Barton only matters to me because he obviously matters to Nat. Otherwise, I don't care. You know, when we were talking about adaptation choices and it was like, hey, Clint Barton is a straight white man. Maybe he could be something else. My suggestion would be Lamp. Right. Because <laughs> I don't care at all. I, honestly, 
I don't, and, and you know, the, we have this moment too in this movie, right? He runs out of arrows. He is useless. Like how, what good are you now? What good are you to me? You have one quiver. It's full of maybe 20 arrows. We've got thousands of these Chitauri coming at you and you're shooting them, you know, and, and like he does this really cool thing where he shoots behind him without looking and gets the Chitauri right between the eyes. Yeah. That's, that's great. You know, Barton, whatever. It's great. Whatever. You're making the silk purse you can out of that sow's ear. Exactly. But... <laughs> but there's nothing. You have no skill sets aside from that. And he's not even, like, he doesn't have a role in the thing. Like, the only reason why I care about him is because of how beautifully Coulson says Barton's been compromised and Nat gets down to business. And then that's that's the only reason I care about him. Because she cares about him. And that's barely enough since I write him out of my head canon for Natasha very quickly. Yes, exactly. (laughs) All right. So now we get to talk about Thor. (laughs) He's okay. He does his job. He does his job. I, I feel like there's so much in Thor that, you know, of course, obviously we've talked about Thor before. He's not my my guy. He's not the kind yeah. of character that I ordinarily like. I don't particularly care for him even here. But we have this wonderful opportunity for this real vulnerability in that this is his brother. You know, this is his brother who has come to this planet, who is endangering this planet. And let's not forget a year ago. What was it? A year, maybe two years ago. We went through this before where his brother brought the destroyer and tore apart a town, you know, and yeah. so we have all of this and, and where Thor sacrificed his life to stop his brother before. And now here his brother is doing this thing again. He loves his brother. You know, he if anybody is going to be invested in Loki's redemption, it's got to be Thor. Thor is the one who in this movie should be trying to find a way that he can get Loki, that he can convince Loki, that he can, you know, and we get a little bit of that when they, when they we talk. We get glimpses. Yeah. But it's, it's nowhere near like he, like here's an opportunity for Thor to feel personally responsible for these terrible things that are happening to this planet. And there is also an opportunity to have Jane. I know we didn't get Natalie Portman for the movie. I know we, we very neatly send her away, you know, <laughs> and that's the only mention of her. Um, but here he is, you know, dealing with this thing again. He died to stop Loki from harming this this planet. And then Loki comes back and doubles down on that. I want to see the, the you know, the anger, the hurt, the desperation, the guilt, to, the, the, guilt the desperation to, to redeem his brother, to find the good in him, to reach him, you know. And we don't really, the only thing we get is, you know, we get the line about the, the guy's a bag full of cats, right? You know, and he's crazy. And then Thor says, I've care how you speak. Loki is beyond reason, but he is of Asgard. And he's my brother. He killed 80 people in two days. He's adopted. Right. Which is funny. And yet. We get a little bit of Thor trying to talk sense into him right at the beginning when they first meet. Mm -hmm. We get it again at the top of Stark Tower, but everything in the middle is Thor tells jokes. Yeah, that Thor is just, you know, the funny funny god, you know? Which is fine, because he's actually very funny. Right, no, I mean, Chris Helmsworth, I'm going to say, funny, like, got great timing, great comic ability, I think that's, but we, we miss such a huge emotional opportunity with Thor that's just sitting there. It's just sitting there and nobody's picking it up. 
Yeah, it's it. It makes me think of like um, like things bubble to the top and bubble back down, mm-hmm. right? And we we can't look at everything all the time. Like that's that's part of the problem with a with a suitcase this full. Yes, yes. I'm now mixing all the metaphors. <laughs> the overstuffed me. suitcase movie. <laughs> it really is. You can't look at everything all the time. So we get a little bit of Thor and Loki yeah. drama at the beginning and a little bit at the end and we just kind of forget it in the middle. And I guess that's maybe the best we can do. Right. But it does feel like missed opportunities. It, it, it really does because I don't think that it would have cost us any more in time or in effort. You know, it just means that we would have had to taken a slightly different tone in those those right. moments with Thor. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. Like, it, I, I feel a little disappointed by it because Thor is funny and that's great, but we shouldn't have him carrying the jokes. He should be carrying the angst in this movie because this is this more one, personal yes, for him than it is for anybody else. This is so incredibly personal for him. Especially because he's the one who threw Loki into space. I yeah. mean, he tried to save him. Right. But it's all... This is an opportunity he never expected to have. Right. And we get he's adopted. Whatever. Exactly. And this is his brother that he thought was dead. Right. So finding out that Loki's alive, you know, like this is huge. This is a big moment. And yet we don't we don't see that. We don't get that. We don't get a sense of that at all. Um and and so that leads us kind of nicely into what is becoming a regular segment <laughs> on uh, on Listen Up A-Holes, which is Lonnie doesn't get it. So I'm going to tell you all of the things that I don't understand and see if you can explain them to me. And it's not that it isn't necessarily in the text of the movie, just sometimes these things get past me. So... Also, I like making this stuff up. It's very so. fun. No, I like. I, I love the way you're able to try, like defend a lot of this stuff too, because it's good. Um, <laughs> all right, so Thor busted up the rainbow bridge by frost thing right and and at the end of thor it was you will never be able to see her again you know um so we have that big drama thor just comes back like how does he just come did they repair it did they get some construction guys working on it over the summer that got it all rebuilt what if if, if what he did to the rainbow bridge was so permanent that Loki was like, you will never see Jane Foster again. Is it just that because the time it would take to rebuild it, you know, in Asgardian years, you know, they've got so many more years that Jane would be dead and old by the time he ever got back. Is that why? I mean, what happened? How was he able to get back? It was the Tesseract that brought Loki here. So Loki was able to wield the power of the Tesseract in order to like port in. How did, how did Thor get back to Earth? This is the best I can do, and it's not great. Okay. <laughs> so the, the Tesseract is an infinity stone. Yes. I would buy that it activating might tingle Odin's all-father sense. <laughs> and he would be like, Thor, you got to go sort this out. And Loki does say something like, how many dark packs did father have to make in order to get you here or something? Yeah. So Odin so was I feel able like... to do some kind of mojo. Yeah, yeah. Some kind of Odin-y business. And I do Odin-y get the feeling that it's a one-way trip unless Thor gets the Tesseract. Okay. Because he and he and Loki use it, use it to, to go, go back. back. Sure. So I, I but again, it's not great. I'm I'm <laughs> like, very confused by cuz it was the whole it was such a huge part of Thor. You can never go back unless Odin decides he wants you to go back and then you can go back. It's fine. Here is the thing. Lonnie, I recently, in Thor Ragnarok, had a twinge where I was like, boy, that's two really big emotional beats from other movies that we just toss aside. Uh 
I don't like that precedent. And it was nice to come back to Avengers and realize, oh, no, they've been doing that since minute one. Right. It's fine. It's, been, it's just the way that it is. We're just it's the lay way that, that it down. is. You got so. so many things happening, you know, in these movies that some of these things kind of get lost. But, um, okay, so the other thing I don't get at all is here they are, right? Uh, he's Loki's at this museum. He steals the guy's eyeball so they can get the what's it, which doesn't even iridium, which doesn't even matter because it's just it's just a little piece of phlebotanum that they had to pick up. It's a mini MacGuffin. Exactly, it's a mini MacGuffin. It doesn't even matter. Um, but but Loki so very obviously wants to be captured, and nobody is paying attention to that and when we get down to it and thor crashes the party right and then don't take my stuff iron man goes out after him right the next thing you know iron man and thor are fighting while loki sits there and watches and does not try to get away like i wanted him to conjure popcorn so bad (laughs) how cool would he be you know just like pull it out of nowhere I mean, it just, it's so obvious. And Fury is the only one who sees it. Loki is a prisoner. And why do I feel like he's the only person on this boat that wants to be here? And yet we we look at it. So obviously somebody had that understanding, but nobody else seems to be like, huh, what's he planning? Why does he want to be on this thing? And why does he? Because he has them attack the helicarrier. You know, they're all up there, you know, floating around. And then his people come in to rescue him. And then that's where the whole big fight and battle happens. How does that help Loki? Because he he wants to activate Banner. That's your play, right? We get that from Nat. Mm -hmm. So he wants to activate the Hulk on the helicarrier. How does that help him with his Tesseract plans? How does that help him open a portal why did he want to get caught? And what does okay, it just mean? Watch me dance. Okay. <laughs> There's a few things. I do actually backfill some reasons that Loki would want to get caught okay. to deal with them. They're not, they're not untextual, right? Right. I think he recruits Barton and Barton's like, well, let me tell you what your problem is. Your problem is shield. And he says, Okay, how do we deal with it? And Barton's like, that's the trick. You can't. It's really big. It's spread out all over the place. <laughs> and he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But who's in charge? Fury. Where do I find him? Helicarrier. Oh, the Hulk will be there too? Problem solved. <laughs> if I can just get close enough to make him Hulk out. And then S.H.I.E.L.D.'s honestly not a problem anymore. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And... Then there's a Captain America and an Iron Man, and he's like, solved that one too. Sweet. Okay. This is not great. Let me tell you, let me share with you (laughs) another authorial theory that I have. I call it the Lassie effect. Okay. It's very difficult to write characters that are smarter than everyone else without just writing everyone else like morons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is why Lassie's family is so stupid. (laughs) So that Lassie the dog looks like a genius. So by comparison, Lassie she is, looks a, super smart. is a brain surgeon. Yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> now, that said, that said, I do feel like we bring a little bit of genre savvy to this. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea that the super spy is the only one who figures out 
Yeah. That that's what the Asgardian super spy, you know, yeah. is up to. Yeah. So I like that bit, but there is a whole bunch of other people being kind of dumb. Yeah. To get there and not the best explanation for why Loki wanted to deal with them anyway. I just assumed it was to take shield off the board. I guess. And even if the Hulk wasn't there, he could probably have done that slower and steadier with uh individual agents mm-hmm. like influencing them, making them do things they shouldn't do. Mhm. Yeah. And, oh, I just realized. Also, he's a giant diversion. While he's doing that, they're not looking for Selvig. Okay. Not really. Yeah. Okay. That I get. That makes sense. That actually makes the most sense to me, is that he's trying to keep them diverted while Selvig is working to prevent them from, like, if, if they're dealing with him, they're not getting in the way of his operation. Okay, look at that. We cobbled something there together. There you go. That makes sense. I mean, we have no textual evidence I mean, evidence that's the for trick. It. It, there is some, I think there's some, mm-hmm. but not like, yeah. you can't put a lock on it. And and it kind of feels like Thor in that way too, right? Or like the, well, here's a ball that got bobbled right. in the juggling of this giant story. You know, we were able to put together something fairly plausible without a whole lot of work. Good enough. Let's go home. Right. Now, Thor, says I understand not Avengers. picking up on it because Thor is not the brightest bulb. No! Are you ever not going to fall for that? So Thor, I get not picking up on it. Tony would have absolutely seen that. Well, except Tony has that problem of being very clever and thinking everyone else is very stupid. No, that's very true. He's busy outwitting S.H.I.E.L.D. so he doesn't notice that he's being outwitted by Loki. <laughs> true. Yeah, I guess. Which, I just... in the hierarchy of outwittingness, Loki should outwit Tony Stark. Like, Tony's... Tony's tells, mm-hmm. well, you just watch Natasha do it through Iron Man 2, yes, right? Like, right, he's sure. He's not hard to cultivate yeah. as an asset. No, that's true. <laughs> but I mean, Nat, Nat would have picked up on that. Nat would have seen that he wanted to be there and why. And so, I mean, that's part of, I think, you know, I think Nat does, you know, pick up on that when she goes in to talk to him and she plays Absolutely. Him. Like, she outsmarts him and she sees that. But it just seems to me like, you know, you really got to ask the question, why does he want to be here? Yeah, no, definitely. Oh, let's headcanon it that Natasha went and told Fury that's what she thought. All right. All right. Let's let's give it to Nat because she really. (laughs) That doesn't fix the Loki problem. Yes, she has earned it. But it makes us happier. (laughs) All right. So let's go to our favorite part. What is your favorite part of the Avengers? My favorite part of the Avengers. And this is really hard to boil down. So I think I'm digging into my superhero fan heart Mm -hmm. for this because there's a lot of good stuff in this movie. Mm Yeah. But I think my favorite part is the Herculean effort that the Avengers go to to save lives during the Battle of New York. Oh, yeah. When this movie came out, I was pretty fresh off of the massive disappointment that was the Man of Steel (laughs) and its callous disregard for human life all through its entire, I don't Mm -hmm. know, entirety. Yes. And so watching and to the point where I got the spoilers and was like, well, that'll make my son and I cry. So we're not going. And then I went to Avengers, and they make a huge deal about how they are going to make themselves the focus and save all these people, mm-hmm. and then we'll figure out how to deal with the big problem. It just really, it made me happy. Yeah. Like, it hit me in my superhero heart, mm-hmm. you know. I, I definitely like that they don't have that kind of callous, casual disregard. We're not blowing people up in the background the way that we were in, say, Iron Man 2, you know, without any concern for 
that for those lives that even the lives of these you know faceless extras you know that we've pulled onto the set that we care about every single life and you can feel the weight of that you know mm -hmm. on them when they're fighting that you you didn't feel in even some of the other you know mcu movies so i really really did like that too did you notice yeah. the the waitress uh -huh. that cap shares some long looks with yes she's actually from a deleted scene mm -hmm. where they kind of connect at the beginning of the movie and here's the deal i'm super glad it got cut oh yeah because i like that our first introduction to cap is him dealing with his stuff yes and then I like at the end that we don't put a human face on all of these people. Right. It's all of them. And that's fine. It's all of them. Yes. Absolutely. You know, I really appreciate that. It's actually a good cut, I feel, because I like where we start with Cap. And I like that these people collectively are important. We don't have to make it personal it's for not anybody. About, it's not about a pretty girl. Exactly. Yeah. Or or even just because she's the one that brought you coffee. Mm -hmm. So you know her kind of. Right. It's everybody. It's everybody. Dude, we have... He put himself in the ocean for 90 years yeah. to save New York. Yeah. He's going to do it again. Absolutely. Anyway, it just, yeah, that was, and there was never a question from the rest of them, even the super spies and the thunder God, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah, we're going to save people. That's what we exactly. do. Anyway, it's very important that I see that, I think, at the time. Yeah, no, I definitely, I, I like that and appreciate that too. Um, my favorite part, of course, is going to be Phil Coulson, right? <laughs> Yes, of I, course. I love Phil. Phil, when he got stabbed through the heart, I was so heartbroken. Oh my I was gosh. So yeah. sad about that. And then here he is. He's just sitting on the floor, dying, bleeding out. You're going to lose. Am I? It's in your nature. Your heroes are scattered. Your floating fortress falls from the sky. Where is my disadvantage? You lack conviction. I don't think I'm... So that's what it does. It's so... It's such classic Coulson. And having watched all of these seasons of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and fallen in love with Phil Coulson more with every single episode of that show that I've watched. You go back and you see the core of Phil Coulson is that is absolutely who that guy is. And that is who he remains, you know? And mm -hmm. for me, I, I love that so much and, you know, love it more now, of course, that I know spoilers, they find a way to bring him back. And, and he heads uh, Marvel's agents of shield, but I mean, so fantastic, so great, like one of the best deaths, you know, that we've seen yes. in the MCU. And it's, it's you know, Coulson being snarky, which I just, I love him. I love him so much. Being earnestly snarky. Earnestly because that snarky. lack of conviction, yeah. that you lack conviction is a huge line. Yeah on Loki, who does in fact lack conviction because he's now doing that tiger by the tail stuff. Exactly, exactly. Because it's never about a greater ideal for Loki. It's just always about what's my next play? What's gonna get me something? You know, how do I use these this trickster mojo, you know, in a new way? And um, and I mean, Coulson sees through that. And I, I love the way he talks to Loki. I love the way he talks to this guy that just stabbed him through the heart. You know, it's just, it's so fantastic. Well, and when he, 
you get that Coulson all the time. You get him when he's talking to Cap yeah. and he's a little bit of a fanboy. Oh, yeah. And you get it right before he dies with Fury when he's like, I let him get me, boss. Yeah. Oh, shut up. Oh, my like, God. I, I didn't dislike Coulson, but I didn't have quite the love mm-hmm. for him that had kind of built up amongst the MCU fandom yeah. by that mm-hmm. point. And even then I was like, well, that's it. Now he's my hero and he's gone. I know. I know. So, and I was yeah, so it sad was strong. about that for like a year until they started up Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I was like, hey, there he is. <laughs> How'd that happen? <laughs> Neat. Life model decoy, but not really. Oh, no, not really. But yeah, no, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We got to talk about that someday. <laughs> soon. So soon. <laughs> we want to thank you all for joining us for this episode of Listen Up, A-Holes. We will be back soon with our hot take on Black Panther. Yes, I know. That's what's next, people. It won't be quite as detailed as what we do here with all of these uh, these movies that we have on DVD that we can stop and rewind right. and, and watch. Um, but you're going to go to the movies and see it. I'm going to go to the movies and see it. Then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about it. And we may have with us a special guest. We should have a special guest that's going to be very helpful to us, especially with an insight into this yes. film, I think mm-hmm. it's it is as Twitter says, it's Black Panther so lit. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. I'm at Lonnie Diane Rich, and Joshua is at Joshua Unruh, and the hashtag is Listen Up A Holes. Both Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions are entirely supported by listeners like you, so please show your support by visiting our Patreon pages. And if you can't support us financially, leave us a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and join in this conversation. Absolutely. The links to Apple Podcasts and both of our Patreon pages are easy to find right there in your show notes. Until next time, if we can't protect the Earth, you can be damned well sure we'll avenge it. Hi, and welcome to Listen Up, A-Holes. The only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that... But, 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 how do I mess up podcast? Like, I don't say that word 10,000 times a day. <laughs> They're podcasts. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need your shade. Uh, I'm going to turn you down even further. Oh, we yeah, really are getting be... more and more brother and sister every week. <laughs> That's right. It's fine. All right. Okay. This time I got this. I got this. I got this. But it also gives a lot of exposure to Wait, Kate Bishop. I'm sorry. This oh, what's happening? Cat is meowing <laughs> like an asshole. I don't think we're ever going to get through this recording. Okay, are you going to shut up now? All right, she just had to throw a couple of meows at me over her shoulder. I'm really, really sorry, Joshua. Can we no, you're good. Get-